0: Uh, so this is the uh, March 18th uh, Lunchtime Learning, uh, talking about the issues of behavioral economics and how they apply to financial counseling and financial coaching. The Lunchtime Learning series takes place each month on the third Monday at noon, like we are right now. Uh, we have a couple more this academic semester. We're going to do one in April and then finally one in May. If I have time at the end, I'll talk a bit about each of those upcoming ones. Um, Today's materials are on the website fyi.uwex.edu slash financial series, and it's the sort of top of the heat. There's a a PDF document called Using Behavioral Economics to Improve Financial Counseling and Coaching, and that's what I'm going to be talking about today. Uh, I'll probably spend about the next 15 or 20 minutes going through the brief itself and talking about some of the findings from that, and then hopefully we'll have some time for discussion and further ideas and resources at the end. Um, as always, feel free to stop me. I'll try to take a breath here now so that you can um, ask me a question as we go along, uh, and we'll go from there. So before I start, any um, questions? Great. Thanks again to everybody who uh, outlasted the technical difficulties this morning. We'll uh, try and make sure that next time we have uh, more with line, lines open so nobody gets blocked out. Anyway, uh, I've talked a little bit about behavioral economics and behavioral finance in the past on uh, some of these calls. I think it's been a couple of years now, and we just sort of talked in general, what is this field? Behavioral economics has gotten a lot of press the last couple of years, thanks in part to a, a book called Nudge, which um, about four years ago came out and has um, been pretty popular. I think it was in the uh, somewhere on the best seller list, you New know, York Times best seller list for a while, so a lot of people have read it. I think the um, at that point in time, we were just sort of talking generally about what behavioral economics is and, and what it means for family financial management kinds of issues. Today, I want to talk specifically about a handful of concepts from behavioral economics that you can apply to your work with clients uh, in coaching and counseling. Um, so I pulled out, I think we also working with uh, Connor Ruck, who's an outreach specialist here, uh, pulled out five sort of key themes from the behavioral finance literature. Behavioral economics and behavioral finance is a, a big set of, of research that um, you know it spans economics and psychology, and there are you know literally dozens of papers every week that come out in this field. So I'm just taking some of the the big concepts and talking about how you can apply them in your work. Um, this is. Um, really just a, a sort of best of there are there are lots of other ways that behavioral finance and economics could be applied to financial decision making to counseling to working with clients um but hopefully this is just a few ideas that are evidence based and helps you get some sense of some some um, ways that you can begin to apply this work um there are resources for most of the sections I'll be talking about and at the end of the um the brief itself, there are you know ten or twelve. Uh, papers or books that are listed and those that are online have like a blue underscore that's that's a hot link so if you click it in the PDF it'll open it up in your web browser so a lot of these we tried to find documents that were actually freely available as opposed to some of the journal articles and whatnot, which you have to get through on the library system but we also cited the original journals in here so you do want to track those down um, okay so I'm going to talk about five ways in general um, and so for each of these I'll talk about what the um what the particular phenomenon is, and then talk about specifically how you might use it or apply it um and you know these these examples are really just examples so I'd welcome feedback from folks too about you know other ideas or other approaches that you've tried that seem consistent with these kinds of approaches or inconsistencies all right so the first one is this idea of reminders and Reminders—you maybe heard me talk about reminders before. It turns out that um, in studies of various kinds of behaviors, whether it's people remembering to keep up with a, say, your doctor tells you to um, do something on a regular basis, like take blood pressure or uh, monitor a certain uh, symptom or a certain issue, um, a simple reminder—be it a phone call, a letter, um, an email or text message, can increase the rate at which people do things. Um, Reminders actually matter. It's probably no big surprise if you've ever tied a string to your finger or worn your watch on the wrong hand or whatever uh, number of other types of ideas that we all see people do to try to remember things. Um, And this is all rooted in the fact that a lot of what we do every day is done in a sort of habitual way. You know, you don't think a whole lot about the steps it takes to, to make breakfast or to get to work or drive or, you know, you sort of have a lot of things that you do on autopilot and a lot of financial things tend to really take a backseat. They're they're not sort of in the front of your, of your thinking. They're not top of mind and so they tend to get forgotten. Um, you know, they may be remembered briefly during the point of the day but they can easily be pushed back and you pay attention to other things that seem like they're more important. And this is a, it's not a fault of people, it's just the way we operate, we have to focus our attention, and by focusing our attention, we have to neglect other things. And the worst kinds of things are these, you know, somewhat sporadic but important things that come along, like a bill. You know, a bill doesn't come along every day, it comes along once a month, and, you know, if you have multiple bills, they sort of sporadically come around over the course of the month. Sometimes you get into a habit where you start to realize, okay, at the beginning of the month, I have to pay attention to these kinds of things. But that those habits can take a while to form, particularly if you're only getting 12 a year. So it's not like you're getting daily uh, or even weekly opportunities to practice these kinds of things. Uh, and then once you have a glitch in the system, a glitch meaning your schedule is interrupted for some reason, um, you know, perhaps it's uh, just a work chain. Sometimes it might be something more dramatic like a job loss or um, something else that makes, more stress in your life and it's really easy to lose track of details uh, like, you know, paper coming through the mail that you have to open and sift through and organize and um, we can just not like we lose the ability to pay attention to these things we just get distracted by those things and again, this is where reminders can be important because in the midst of all this uh, habitual or automatic processes that we're involved in we and neglect to pay attention to some of those little things that actually do matter. And the reminder can make that otherwise forgettable stuff important to us. Um, so we've seen studies of reminders for savings, reminders for paying off debt, reminders for paying bills, um, reminders for uh, revising a budget or sticking to a budget. These are all different kinds of reminders that we've seen studies on. The The most dramatic studies have been around savings where People are reminded about their savings goal through cell phone text messages. And the increase in the rate of savings among people who got these reminder messages far exceeds anything we've ever seen since financial education by itself. You know, financial education at best has increased savings by, you know, three or four percent, maybe five or six percent in a really strong study, uh, with, with a lot of structure for the savings. Uh, the, the, Emailed or texted reminders showed show results of nine to sixteen percent in one study, increase in savings. So it really can have a, a powerful, um, powerful impact. Now there are some trade-offs. One is that people are getting more and more text messages, and as they get more and more text messages, it's harder to pay attention to any one text message. Another is is that you know the first few times I get a text message from from someplace reminding me about something, I might pay more attention than the 15th or 20th time. So the reminders may have a sort of uh, atrophy over time. And we think about reminders, we just think about them as sort of short-term reminders for, for a few periods as opposed to just automatic every month kind of reminders that sometimes we forget. Although I will say, even with the automatic, you know, every month reminders, um... You know they still have some effect, so it's not like the effect goes to zero. It's just they they're not as potent as when the reminders first start up. Um, I think that reminders are probably um, most powerful, at least according to some of the studies, when they're linked to a goal. Uh, so the reminder isn't just to do something; it's to do something in order to further a specific goal. Um, so that's another aspect of this when we when we um, you know, want people to do something that furthers a goal that they're already invested in. It's probably going to have a, a stronger effect. Um, and oftentimes it, it seems to work better for for things that are sort of episodic, where you need to pay attention for a short time and then you're not paying as much time, maybe not paying as much attention at a later point in time. Um, so an example of reminders in that context might be, like, open enrollment time during health benefits or with work-related items. So that's a, one of the examples where we've seen uh, reminders used. But I think you could think about, um, in terms of working with coaches, with your counseling or coaching clients, um, you could think about reminders in a number of different ways. One is just to remind them about something they need to do before the next visit, or even if there isn't another visit planned, some things that you talked about in your session that the person agreed that they would take on and try to do. This could be an email. It could be a, a, an envelope that you send with a note in it. It could be a postcard they fill out during your counseling session. And they address, and you just pop it in the mail. <laughs> three or four weeks later, whenever the, the follow-up's going to be, um, phone calls or voicemails can be another approach to reminding people about something. Uh, one tool I want to highlight is this this website called Oh Don't Forget. There are other ones too. This is this is a commercial website, and so their 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 business model is essentially to put a little ad into text messages. But you can try this even for yourself to remind. Remind yourself to do something, you know, later this week if you want to experiment with it. Um, you can also pay pay a relatively modest subscription fee. I think it's the order of three to four dollars um, to be able to do a certain number of messages without those ads if you think those ads are problematic. Um, but this is a way you can actually have a text message sent in the future, uh, so you can have a text sent to yourself on uh, whatever April fifteenth to say make sure you filed your taxes. Now that might be a little late. But, uh, you know, that's an example of the kinds of things you can do. It's really, really fascinating to do. You can literally set these up in, you know, a minute or less. Um, The ads that I've seen on them are pretty innocuous. They aren't promoting things that you, um, you know, would be offended by. And I think the vast majority of people don't click on the links anyway. Um, So the ads are really, I don't know how effective they are. Um, Obviously, that's part of their business model is for these ads. But... It might just be that their business model is to make the ads kind of annoying so that you pay the small fee to become a subscriber. I don't know. Um, you know, there are some issues with sending people text messages. There are, it's not a minority, but there are some people who are charged a fee for each text message they receive. Um, most mobile phone plans these days have pretty generous text messaging. And you probably want to check with the client before you started sending them text, especially if you were going to send them more than you know, a couple of texts, uh, because it might push them over. But the cost for additional text is pretty small, and like I said, most people these days have either unlimited texting or they have such a high cap on it that it's rare they would get near that point. Um, There are other ways you can do text messages from websites. So, oh, don't forget, is a way to set it up by a certain date, but you can also do them sort of instantly. So you could just have a list of, okay, this week I need to... Send these texts to these people. There are websites you can go to and uh, go ahead and send out a a text site online as well. Again, at at no charge to you. There might be concerns with the the uh, client's account for how they manage their text messaging. But, um, you know, again, that's probably the kind of thing you want to check with clients or have part of your initial client agreement. Um, Any questions and reminders before I move on to goals?
1: dial in, it sounds like. I'm I yeah. for text messages coming in.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's all reminders. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, uh, so I'll move on to the next topic, which is goals. Um, this is um, a, a, an interesting literature, because it, it's not just economics. It's really mostly grounded in psychology, and then economists got interested in it, as <clears throat> they began to think about how do you get people to change their behavior, or how do you get people to to report their behavior in such a way that we start to see it seem like it moves in response to some kind of a program or phenomenon. So this whole idea of goal says, well, people are more likely to take on a behavior if it fits into some overall framework, and what that framework is. um, You know, there's something I want to achieve sort of vaguely, and so some steps to get there are some, some some. Actions I want to take, and those are the behaviors that I'm going to work on moving towards. And there's there's been a number of studies which show if people write down their goals, they're more likely to be invested in them and more likely to follow up on them. There's also some um, some literature that shows that when those goals are uh, more concrete, and there's people are sort of more emotionally tied to them. They're more likely to be motivated by those particular goals. So you've probably come across people who say, well, my goal is to be a millionaire. My goal is to uh, be an NFL player. You know, some, some goals that are sort of really uh, more than they can, than it seems like it's feasible. Um, and and um, sometimes those goals are motivating, but oftentimes they're just so big that they sort of lose their, their effectiveness and their ability to, to have any impact at all. Um, so we talk a lot about different ways of helping people form goals that really are uh, motivating, that really get people to, to change their behavior. Oftentimes we've talked in the past about SMART goals, the idea that they should be specific, they should be measurable, oftentimes numerically measurable, actionable, meaning you can actually do something, um, relevant and timely. Um, these are There are variations on that acronym, Sometimes that acronym is also used in strategic planning for organizations. Sometimes there's two A's for aggressive and attainable or actionable, so we have lots of different variations on this. Um, I think there's been some backlash against the SMART framework in that oftentimes people get so caught up in the technicalities of each of those aspects that they um, they lose the emotional attachment. And so SMART goals might help people be specific, but they might sort of then get detached from what matters, which is, why am I doing this? Um, And so the uh, sort of newer version of SMART goals is to begin to think more about where you're headed, what's sort of the the emotional engagement, what's the sort of big picture thing that that keeps people motivated, um, and frame the goals really in that context more than, you know, I'm going to have $10 in my bank account by June 15th. Uh, you know, I'm going to have $10 in my bank account on June 15th because it's going to get me something else that I think is valuable and important. Uh, another aspect of goals is that we, we're seeing more and more, there's particularly some work on goal intention, that um, the more people can specifically describe how they're going to achieve their goal, the more likely they are to move forward. And so they talk about this idea of implementation intention, so we know that we make promises to ourselves we don't keep, we know that we procrastinate, we know we, you know there's lots of examples we can think of in money, diet, exercise, all kinds of things where we fall we fail to follow through on what we say we're gonna do. But the more we can say, okay, I really I my intent is to do this by this point in time, um, and really make that implementation intention explicit, the more likely people are to follow through on that particular item. The most important thing about intentions though is that uh, an intention is, is nice if, if it, uh, if you follow through on it, but it's, uh, more likely to be followed through on if you know I'm gonna ask you about whether you said, whether you did what you intended to do. In other words, if I tell you I'm going to, uh, I don't know, try and run ten miles next week, uh, which I'm not promising to do, by the way, uh, and, and, I tell you that that's my intention and that's sort of my uh, goal that I'm going to try to do that. Um, I really don't have anybody to hold me accountable for that except that I just told you about it and now you might ask me about it next week. And then I'm going to have to either fess up and say, no, I didn't follow through and have to feel bad about that. Or, uh, you know, say I did it and, and have some sense of achievement for doing that. So accountability, both the expectation of accountability and the actual monitoring to follow up and say, hey, did you do it? um really matters. And so the more that a client actually believes that your implement the implementation intentions that you talk about are something that you're gonna follow up on and ask about, the more they're likely to take that implementation intention seriously and try to actually do it. Um so the you know I guess the overall takeaways here on goals would be first to work with clients. Um you know you can use the smart framework if it helps, but more important is to the goal grounded in sort of an emotional level in the sort of big picture, inspiring vision. Um, and then make sure the client understands that there's an expectation that you're going to follow up. Um, now obviously you don't want to have an expectation and then fall through on that because then you start to lose credibility. So you know, don't make that promise of following up if you can't follow up. Um, but if, again if, if, if they think that there's a chance that you're going to follow up then they're probably more likely to follow through on their whatever their intentions are. And those follow ups can be relatively simple, so it could be an email, a phone call, Um, you know, it could be, it's different from the reminders per se, but um, because you're actually looking for a response, it's not just a reminder to do it, but also a, hey, did you do that or not, and looking for a a yes-no response, Um, but you could do that by email, a text message, or a phone call, or you know, cheaper, cheaper ways to get there. any questions on goal setting? All right. Next is uh, number three here, this category of reference dependent choices, which is a bit of a I struggled a bit with the title for this one because it's not exactly the language you probably think about a lot. but I think it's descriptive as you think about this idea of reference dependence that that you're always making decisions compared to something else the sort of compared to what problem that that we all think about. And so one way this matters is um, you know if my reference point is the status quo or if my reference point is a big gain, or if my reference point is a big loss, in each of those situations, I might make a different decision. Even if the dollar amounts on the table were the same and uh, sort of all the expected values around things are the same, I might uh, make a different decision because of whatever that reference point was. So if my reference point is that I'm going to be losing money, so if I, if I do this or don't do this, I'm going to lose money, That's going to be something I'm going to be highly motivated to try and take care of, whether it's doing something or avoiding something. If my reference point is I'm going to gain money, I'm motivated by that. I'm not saying that people are not motivated by trying to gain money. But people are relatively less motivated than they are to avoid the same size of a loss. And Sometimes we call this loss aversion. Um, There's different ways that this has been phrased. Sometimes it's called mental accounting. But the idea is that, that... you know, people feel the pain of a loss, uh, and they like the gain of a uh some kind of a gain, but they're just much more willing to work to avoid a loss, uh, than they are to try to get the equivalent size gain. And that in most studies it shows about it's about twice as much. So people will work about twice as hard to avoid a five hundred dollar loss as to get a five hundred dollar gain. Um and so one of the reasons why this matters for work and coaching and counseling is oftentimes people are mostly working in a loss dimension. So so most of the things they're facing are, are losses. There aren't a whole lot of unequivocal gains that are be had out there. Tax refunds might be one. But there's just not that many. Often it's you know, I have to pay off debt, I have to write bigger checks, I have to not buy stuff, you know, not be able to consume stuff because I have to do other things. These all feel like losses. Um and so it's you know, oftentimes it's hard to get people to do those things because they feel like losses. Um, and we sometimes we can reframe things so that we make the reference point not a loss but a gain. So it's not that you uh lose five hundred dollars by paying off a credit card bill, but it's that you, um, you know, if you, uh, you know, don't do this, you're going to have some loss of, uh you know, the interest that might occur or those kinds of things that you did you bring up and sort of tick off the things that people want to try to avoid. Um, The gain of just not having a debt may not be sufficient to get people to try to make that choice. Sometimes we can change um, not what the reference point is, but just change what the sort of norms or the expectations are. So sometimes people will be motivated by a reference point if you say, you know, the average for somebody like you is to carry this amount of debt, uh, assuming that that works in their favor. Um, or, you know, other kinds of reference points that are socially motivated or set up some kind of norm, or even some aspirational expectations. So people who are at the top end of the um, wealth distribution do this, or people who are small business owners do this, and that sometimes can change the what the status quo is and, and make people more motivated to, to engage in that particular behavior. Um, it's Overall, it's, I think it's hard sometimes to think about um, gains and losses when we're working with clients because, as I said, so many of the things we're talking about are about cutting losses as opposed to an outright gain. Um, But sometimes that can be to our advantage because people do want to avoid losses. And so thinking about how we frame each behavior, each behavior change that you're talking about with a client, as either a gain or loss is important. Um, The benefit uh, might be sort of the same, uh, but from the client's perspective, a loss might be felt in the sense of not being able to spend money on something or um, not having the ability to engage in some activities they were engaging in. And so reframing these kinds of things in different ways can be important, and particularly to make the things that are that we want to motivate people to do to be framed as as losses so that they um, are avoiding that thing to be a loss and then thinking about the equivalent gain is. Um, One of the ways that these reference points oftentimes sign people is that the status quo meaning doing nothing, is really seen as being sort of riskless and no cost. And so doing anything becomes seen as more costly. And so people tend to just stick with the status quo. Uh, and so that's, a, that's another thing we have to think about, is that sometimes taking any action can perceive as a bit of a loss. Um, and actually that just rolls right into the the next item on default options. Um because what we know is with these TAS calls is that whatever the default is is what people will tend to do. There's I've talked about it on these calls before, but there's a, a pretty faint example of organ donations in Australia and Germany where in Australia it's, or Austria, sorry, not Australia. In Austria it's an opt out where most people are in the registry unless they ask not to be. But in Germany you're not in the registry unless you ask to be. And it sort of flips. The number, the percentage of people in each country who are on the organ donation registry, it's only 12% of Germans and almost 100% of the Austrians. We've seen studies of this in 401Ks. So if a company defaults into the 401K, like 80 or 90% of employees will be part of it. If you have to ask to be in the 401K, maybe 10 or 20% of people are in it. So we see this all the time, um, where, where people just stick with the default. And again, it's because the status quo is seen as sort of being the, uh, the least risky choice, the, cho- the choice that doesn't present any potential loss. And so as a result, people would just stick with the status quo, even if they're better off taking some kind of an action. So this is one you can use to your benefit when you're working with clients in that, for example, we talked about um, reminders for text messaging. If you just say, look, I'm going to send you a text message to remind you about whatever we agreed to today, unless you say you don't want that. That's a, that's a default where they have to opt out instead of opt in. If you ask them, do you want to do this, and they have to opt in, very few are probably going to be likely to do it. If you have to, if you ask them that, they want to opt out and not want to do this, it's probably very few that would opt out. And so it would really change the percentage of clients that are in each category. Um, you know, I think the other thing you can do, is if, even if you don't use them as some kind of follow-up or as part of your service itself, um, help a client understand how they might be sticking to the status quo, even though it's not their best interest. So a good example of the status quo is paying off just the minimum balance on a credit card. Um, People may just get into a habit of doing that and not think about what that means. There are lots of examples where the default that's set up, say, on a retirement plan or on a uh, mortgage payment schedule are what people stick to, even though they might want to do a different amount, a typically larger amount. Um, in some cases, though, people might be over-saving in their retirement account, where they're you know, saving 10% of their income, and yet they're running up credit card debt. So that might be a case where it makes more sense to scale back away from the default amount that people are saving and, and actually reduce their saving and use that to pay off debt. So just helping clients talk through their defaults and understand how defaults matter can, can be an important way to go forward. Um, the last category is mental accounting. Um, and this is one that is talked quite a bit in the, talked about quite a bit in the, the book Mudge, Nudge, and I think is um, you know, particularly important to think about as we get near tax time, because we see people who get tax refunds, and those tax refund dollars are treated in a different way. The tax refund is, um, seen as being, um, money that they can sometimes freely spend. It's fun money, it's Unexpected money in some cases if the refund's larger than expected. Um, and we tend to do this all the time where we, we treat different pots of money in different ways. A bonus might be treated differently than regular take-home pay. Um, a refund, say you buy something and you get a refund uh, for part of the purchase. If you refrigerator, you get a $100 refund. Um, that $100 might be then, um, you might cash that and put it in a different way than you would if you had a hundred dollars in income or you just paid a hundred dollars less for the, in the first place. Um, so people tend to create these different buckets that they label their money in. And with some of the new online um, accounting systems or prepaid cards, or even some of the um, bank accounts that have online um, accounts where you can label different buckets, um, people have been able to say, okay, this is my home account, this is my mortgage account, this is my uh spending for food account, this is my uh car transportation account. Which if you think about it sounds a lot like the old envelope method of budgeting. And we've just sort of taken that now to an online version where people are labeling the accounts in their prepaid card or in their their online bank account management. Um, which can be an important strategy because people will tend to stick to those mental accounts. They won't spend any more than, than each account um and you know, it depends on how good the online tool is, but they can be you know, in some cases as full well as the, the old envelope method, um if people are really believe that those boundaries are are accurate and that they um, will spend what's in it and don't need to spend any more from other accounts. Uh, another example of where we see this working is in this idea of save more tomorrow where you know people say, Today I can't save. I'm my money's too tight. But then if you talk to them about, you know, do you expect to get a raise anytime soon? Do you think you're going to get that cost of living adjustment? Oh, yeah, I think, you know, come next January, I'm going to have another 2% of my income. Well, maybe now in March or April, we can have a conversation about taking half of that 1% or 2% cost of living increase or whatever raise you think you might be getting and putting that into savings or using that to pay down debt. And if people commit to that in advance before they actually get the boost of their paycheck, they're much more likely to follow through than after they get the money and start to feel what it's like to have extra money in their bank account. They'll start to spend it. Then it becomes really hard. It begins to feel like a loss. And so it becomes really hard for them to scale back and put that into savings or or debt repayment at that point in time. So, you know, some ideas of working with this with clients would be to help clients label their accounts, whether it's online or um, in a different way. Um, And then, you know, really making that part of an explicit part of making a spending plan so that accounts are labeled and there's actually some mechanism to to think about, okay, this is the maximum I'm going to spend in any given month or any given pay period on this this type of activity. And if you sort of set that up well, then you have some surplus that's left to go to things like debt repayment or or paying down savings. Um, Tax time is another one to think about. A lot of people spend their tax refunds, between late November and early February before they actually get it. And so if you worked with clients in September October to say, okay, how much tax refund did you get last year? Here's sort of what we're thinking your tax refund is going to look like for this next year. Let's instead of going ahead and spending all that through the holidays in early January, let's set aside some of that in this sort of mental account. So when that refund comes, it's not already already spent, all already spent, there's some leftover that can be used for, for other purposes. Um, so I think that's part of um, a sort of example of the kinds of ways you can use mental accounting and work with clients. Um, again, these are just five five different approaches. Many of them are, are really thinking about um, how people think about gains and losses or how people segregate funds. Some of them are more about memory, things like the the reminders. Um, and then some are more emotional, um, particularly to goals and and how people follow up. Um, most of this is pretty, um, uh, you know, I don't think any of this uh, this research is is particularly hard to follow. I mean, a lot of this is just common sense. Um, what is different about it is it, it's been shown in sort of multiple studies in psychology or economics that people consistently behave in these ways that we may not always predict. Um, and that might all, might not always be in their best interest, and so that's sort of I think what what catches attention these kinds of studies is because they do seem like they're turning turning some old ideas back over on their head. But in many times in many times the the old ideas were sort of common sense, and so maybe in some cases it's where the research uh, sort of assumes some things about behavior that that we know from our own behavior or watching the people around us just aren't true. Um, but they made them more concrete and they've made them more systematic, so that we can begin to use these in ways that, um, you know, hopefully will have consistent results across clients or um, be more likely to to show some effects. The hardest thing about all this work is to try to boil it down into a couple of things that can actually be done in the real world and not just in a lab experiment. Um, so these are a few examples of how that that might work. This this work continues to uh, evolve over time. There's a few links at the end of the brief that you might want to check out. Um the Corporation for Enterprise Development has this behavioral economics one oh one, which is a nice um a nice sort sort of summary of the literature. And there's a handful of um other documents here which talk about applications, including one by Mindy Hernandez, who for a while her main job was to try to figure out ways to translate behavioral economics to the real world so that um you know, nonprofits and program managers could really use it in their work. And so most of these links here are, are examples of, of that kind of work where they try to take these theories and apply them. And the last thing I would suggest is this book, Nudge. If, if you don't have a copy, most libraries have it. It's a pretty quick read, uh, and it gives you some sense, perhaps an overly optimistic sense, but still some sense of how these uh, these different kinds can be applied uh, in different kinds of financial and uh, health and other kinds of uh, behaviors that people engage in. So with that, I'll stop and uh, I welcome questions or other suggestions of ways to apply these kinds of things
1: or just general comments.
2: Well, this is Peggy and Richland and I guess uh, I mean, I love all this behavioral economic stuff and I think what it has me thinking about is when I meet with people for financial education or more so one-on-one um budget counseling or financial counseling um, I guess I'm trying to challenge myself to to put myself in other people's shoes and think about how some of these principles um could help like you said nudge people into a direction that could make their finances or managing finances a little bit easier to them so i don't I guess I don't have any specific to share offhand, but I'm just wondering if other people are kind of intentionally trying to do
3: some of this too. And I wonder how this plays out when you're looking at the difference between counseling and coaching. Um, To me, it would seem um, you'd have to be much, I don't know, more planful in coaching and trying to um, address some of these behavioral economics without reco- making recommendations or prior helping them or prioritizing for them or
0: yeah I think that's right I think you know they're powerful influences you need to think about regardless of whether it's coaching or counseling um, but it, they are powerful and so you have to um, probably check yourself a bit more with coaching clients and not say, let's do this because it's going to drive you towards the right answer. Right. Um, um, but I can think, you know, things like reminders uh, or goals. I mean, once somebody's decided what their goal is, helping them link back to the emotional aspect of it, that, that's still clearly coaching. The reminders are still clearly once people decide. I mean, it's, it's more that the client first has to decide what's important to them and then use these techniques to help them get to where they want to go.
1: And this is Chris Kniep and what I was thinking about too is is, um, when you're working with a family or with couples and um, they look at nudges differently and how to make that work in families Chris, is there an
2: example you're thinking of with how somebody might take a nudge um, differently than
1: another person? I can, I can share a personal experience. It's not exactly on track with this, but, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I get nudges um, from my contact lens um, source, actually, that it's time to change my lenses. Um, and we get my husband and I um, do our insurance. Um, online, and we got a nudge um, that the car insurance was due. You know, and I pay attention to those. And somebody in my house forgot, and we actually lost their car insurance for a bit because uh, that nudge was just another email message that looked like trash. So yeah, <laughs> I, 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 that's what I was thinking about. That that my husband and I just look at at both um, prompts. We pay attention to them differently. He's still alive, by the way.
0: <laughs> Somebody in your household. Okay, I understand that. <laughs> no, you know, I think there's really very little research on this particular issue. It's a great point, though.
1: I, I think you you, you got to just connect with the person on what works for them.
2: Well, and, Chris, aside from the fact I'm glad you haven't murdered your husband and that you, assuming you have car insurance now too, um, you have me thinking about ways, like if we're working with people on budgeting or tracking spending or something, just having that conversation with them about what they already do, you know, like if they already look at a calendar um, or, you know, if there's something they're already doing that they could just, you know, do their tracking, their spending with, their... Um, so I was kind of thinking about nudges like that, so like using the example of your poor husband who we're probably glad he's not here.
1: Poor like, husband, yeah, okay, got it.
2: <laughs> so if he knows like he just ignored emails or things like that, that would not be for him. So it's kind of like knowing yourself and being able to communicate about that.
1: Absolutely, and I guess that's where the 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 talking with the the person or the group that you're working with, like and Peggy, you've suggested too that that you know when we do a follow up um, with program participants um, that you let them know, you give them a heads up at the at the workshop or that they're going to be getting this. So when it comes, we'd like you to do this. So I think it's just building in those messages as as you implement these. And by the way, I saw on our com- next to our computer um, a big post-it note on the last nudge, and he will be paying it on time.
2: <laughs> See for him, it's post-it notes. It's great.
1: Well, now it's working after he was close to death.
2: Oh, so and you know, since Chris is bearing it all here, um, I'm just thinking about how I can't do online banking at one of my banks because if I go online to pay a mortgage or whatever. They'll only send me my monthly bank statement online and what I've learned about about myself is it'll go like 3 4 months by before I'll even balance my checking account if they're just sending me an email that I need to get something mailed to me that will sit on the kitchen table till I look at it. So I can't do the email thing either. I need to get something a paper that I have to stare at every day.
1: And and I think A piece of what we're talking about, too, Peggy, is generational, um, that what's right for um, the people that we're talking with and how do they communicate and what what are they paying attention to. Not that we're old or anything, but paper still has a meaning for me, too.
2: Yeah, especially the email overload, and I know Michael mentioned the text overload.
3: I'm wondering what the next overload will be. I think that adds, maybe not another layer, but should make us think about um, the original. If I'm going to meet with a client, I have that original kind of assessment to see where they're at. Maybe that's one of the questions I could be adding to that, you know, what kind of information and how do you need it kind of thing.
1: And it's (laughs) a... This is a strategy to help you be successful in reaching your
3: goals? Yeah. Sometimes, though, when I think with some of the clientele that I work with, um, the reason they've gotten to the, the point where they've gotten with their finances is because they're so frozen, because there's so many choices or options that they choose not to make a decision i think michael you kind of referred to that earlier where it's just that they go with the status quo for whatever reason and so i get a little leery about adding a whole other level of options for them to choose from and freeze them even further
0: Do people have any thoughts about the goals area, the goal implementation, and this emotional tie?
1: Well, I, I think it's a strategy that's used in many different change venues. So it makes sense that it works here.
3: I was really glad you emphasized that emotional piece because, um, really, I think that, like Chris said, most decisions that we make are, you know, we might think we're basing them on um, just rational research decisions, but I would say that the majority of them are, are based on emotion.
1: And the last question I have is, uh, does anybody have any
0: suggestions for other um, books or resources that you'd like to share?
2: Hi, this is Peggy again. I really liked that Predictably Irrational, which is kind of in that same venue as Nudge, um, but maybe written a little more entertainingly, but by Dan Ariely. Has anyone,
3: well, aside from Michael, has anyone else read that? I've heard you talk about it before, Peggy. What is his last name? Um, It's Ariely,
2: A-R-I-E-L-Y, and it's Dan. It's Predictably Irrational. Um, and he talked about a lot of the stuff that was, you know, in brief with that, with, um, you know, offering things, setting a price point or offering things that are free and um, and how people are wanting to enter in lotteries or take their chances, the option to win something versus losing something.
0: All right. Well, I think I'll um, I'll kind of wrap it up here. I just remind people on um, the 15th, I think that's right, April 15th, we're going to talk about financial capability. I'm hopeful that I'm going to be able to talk about the new financial uh, capability data. So the FINRA Foundation has done these surveys of people in Wisconsin. The last was 2009. They did one last year. The data should, for Wisconsin should be out in the next few weeks. I'm hopeful that that's the case. Um, if not, I'll I'll improvise and we'll figure out a way to get it done. But the data, I think is it should be prepared by then. Uh, and then our last one is going to 20th, and we're going to talk about popular press books. And so I, I think I've asked before, but if anybody has examples of books, like Dan Ariely's book um, that you've read and you think would be good to share with other people, uh, let me know because we're going to sort of do a summer reading list and um, talk about um, various books that, that we think would be helpful for our work. So, Thanks, everybody. Have a great day.